about money. We weren't surprised to hear him talking about money again, because Jesus often addressed the topic of money in his sermons and in his teachings. And any preacher who faithfully preaches the Gospels will find himself repeatedly speaking about money for the simple reason that Jesus did. He did this because he knew that the way a person handles money is so immediately indicative of the condition of his or her heart. The place that money holds in your heart, as indicated by the way you use it, is a true litmus test of your love for, or lack of love, for God. Neither will we be surprised uh, this morning to find out that others had been listening in as Jesus taught his disciples that a person can have only one master, that you may have God as your master or you may have money as your master, but you cannot serve both. Jesus had a way of doing that, of piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow with the sword that proceeds from his mouth, the very word of God that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I say others were listening in, namely the Pharisees. And as long as we're not being surprised by things this morning, we might add one more thing to the list that comes as no surprise. Their response to Jesus' teaching about money, they turned up their noses, they sneered at him. Why? Why would they sneer and scoff at Jesus' teaching about money? Well, that's a question you may answer for yourself as we read Luke's account of this history in Luke 16 after we pray. Father, we once again come to your word and once again realize just how much we depend upon your Holy Spirit to teach us and to take these words uh, spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ and to write them on our hearts and cause our lives to conform to their truth. We want these things to happen, Father, so we pray for your Spirit that he will come and do it as we willingly and eagerly uh, engage ourselves now in the hearing of your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Obviously, Jesus had touched a nerve. The Pharisees scoffed at Jesus' teaching about money, not because it was so patently ridiculous in itself. It wasn't. 
But because it laid their hearts wide open like a surgeon's blade incising a festering injury and exposing it to the sting of air and light. They loved money. They were lovers of money. But because the Pharisees were at that moment surrounded by other people, they couldn't openly contradict Jesus. If they had, everyone would have seen them for what they truly were, money grubbers. Not that the average bear you know, couldn't have figured that out for himself about them, but, but they had, they felt an appearance to maintain. Jesus had laid his finger right on their hearts, and the op- only option left to them at that moment was to scoff. What strikes me, and I know it has often struck you too, about these conflicts that we've grown accustomed to witnessing between Jesus and the Pharisees, that so often, though not always, involved money, is the fact that both of these parties were, are very religious. The Pharisees and Jesus were both Very religious. That is the ground they share and the ground on which they meet. Religion. They have that much in common. But the directions they were traveling on that religious ground were so very different from each other. As different from the, uh, as as the directions of the west bounder and the east bounder are out here on Route 54. They're both, uh, they share much in common, of course. They're both in cars, and they both are riding on this piece of pavement that we call Highway 54. But they're headed in very different, completely different directions. And when they cross the line into each other's paths, things get ugly. So Jesus and the Pharisees are traveling in opposite directions the day they meet here and collide once again, head on. Now, I don't know about you, about all of you, but I know that when it comes to the traffic of life and eternity, I want to be traveling the same direction that Jesus is going. I don't ever want to find myself crashing head on with the maker of the universe, the way the Pharisees did. The result cannot be pretty. Nor do I wish to see any of you, dear flock, finding yourself in that position. I would rather that we as a church entire, all of us, would find ourselves traveling in the same direction as our Lord and Master, Jesus We learn to do that even if from the negative example of the Pharisees in this passage. As we witness this collision between Jesus and the Pharisees, we may pause to examine ourselves. Check our compass again to see in what direction we're traveling and to be assured that we're traveling in the right direction, in Jesus' direction. Here are some indicators of your direction of travel that you may look for. Do you love what God loves? Are you saved the way God saves? 
And are you obeying the commandments of God the way God commanded them? First, you must love what God loves. This is a sure indication that you're headed in the same direction as Jesus. You love what Jesus loves. What did the Pharisees love? Well, they loved money. Dr. Luke tells us as much in verse 14, and we might have deduced as much from other passages, uh, like the one where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for refusing to use their money to care for their aging parents. Their tradition of Corbin, that is of tagging their money as dedicated to the Lord, so as to keep it from such secular uses as, oh, I don't know, helping your uh, aging parents, uh, was their way of um, working out, of living out their love for money. They were ruthless lovers of lucre, of mammon. That's why they scoffed at Jesus' teachings about money. What else did the Pharisees love? You remember? The Pharisees loved the praise of men. Jesus rebukes them in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. They loved the recognition of people, particularly the admiration of others for their holiness. They love to be thought law keepers. They love to be thought righteous by others and to bask in the praise of men. Debbie and I have a little ritual that we go through several times a week, sometimes daily. She does something for me, as she's always doing, usually without my notice, but every once in a while I'll notice and say with all the warm affection of my heart, you're such a good wife, my dear. And she turns tenderly to me and replies, I know. (laughs) And then I say something like, and you're so humble too. And she replies, yes, I am. And isn't it amazing? (laughs) The Pharisees loved the praise of men. And when they heard it in their hearts, they said, yes, and isn't it amazing? Every time it happened, every time they heard the praise of men or even perceived their notice, they basked in it, and meanwhile, God was disgusted by it and repulsed by it. It was an abomination to him. Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination. In the sight of God. William Hendrickson paraphrases what Jesus has to say to them this way. You are the people who pass yourselves off before men as if you were living in harmony with God's holy law. But your righteousness is only a facade. On the inside, you are the very opposite of what you want people to believe you are. However... God has your number. 
He knows that your religion is a sham. For what men see of you and admire is an abomination in God's sight. We might add to the list of things that the Pharisees loved lies rather than the truth. Because their whole lives were just big fat lies. All their loves, money, the praise of men, the lies they told about themselves, even to themselves, those loves were an abomination in God's sight. They loved what God hates, and it put them on a head-on collision with Jesus. Not that God hates it when people compliment others, or that when, or when you receive a compliment. God does not hate that. God does not hate money. What he hates is when we love those things and make idols out of them, when we live for them and not for him, for his praise, for his blessing, for his smile, for his glory. What we need to do, dear flock, is to love what God loves and what God commends, and not necessarily what man admires. And because he sees our hearts, right? He looks not on the outward appearance, the Bible says, but on the heart. Because he sees our hearts, we may be sure that he will see and commend what men cannot see, and even if they could, probably wouldn't commend. We need to love using the money that's been entrusted to us for good for relieving the needs of others, for his kingdom. We need to love building up others rather than seeking men's attention and praise for ourselves. We need to love the truth. We need to love the word of God. We need to love fellowship with our Savior in his Bible, and in prayer. We need to love whatever brings glory to our God, making ourselves less and him more. We need to love people created in his image and seeing heaven populated with more of them every day. We need to love genuine holiness Not the empty shell, not the external sham of religiosity like the Pharisees put on, but real holiness. Putting sin to death in our hearts and adding true righteousness, real, new obedience every day. Back to that thought in a few moments. In sum for now, we need to love what God loves. Second, we must be saved the way God saves. In verse 16, Jesus continues, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, there's some debate about what Jesus means by saying that everyone forces his way into the kingdom of God. In fact, there's some debate even over how to translate it precisely. 
But I think the best understanding we have is that people in Jesus' day were anxious to enter the kingdom of God. As Jesus' ministry expanded over those few years, more and more people were pressing to get into the kingdom of God. Think of men dropping their friend through a hole they cut in the roof to lower him on a, on a cot before Jesus. Or, or that woman who pressed her way through the crowd if only to touch the hem of his robe. They were forcing their way into the kingdom of God. Like people lined up at the stores on South Frederica at 4 o'clock in the morning on Black Friday pressing up against the glass for the manager to open the doors, you know, to get in there to get those once-in-a-lifetime deals. These people were forcing their way to Jesus, and through him, that is, through faith in him, into the kingdom of God. They were practically breaking down the doors to get in. The Pharisees, of course, were not. On the contrary, they were anxious to close the doors of the kingdom to others, even to themselves, even to the point of putting Jesus to death. But to their chagrin, the Pharisees found themselves so often surrounded by crowds of people who were not only glad to follow Jesus, they were eager to follow Jesus, whatever the cost to their own salvation. That's how eager we need to be. How excited we need to be pressing on and into the kingdom to the salvation that is found in Jesus. Following him, whatever the cost, whatever the expense to us, forcing our way into the kingdom of God. Being saved the way he saves. Loving what he loves. And third... We must keep the commandments of God the way God commanded them. That is, we must love the law of God, the law that the Apostle Paul called holy, just, and good. The commandments that Jesus said we will keep if we love him. Remember? Now, I hear your objections already. I hear your, your hearts rising up and saying, well, that just make us like the Pharisees again. That just make us all tied up with law-keeping instead of tied up with Jesus. But that's not so. For one thing, the Pharisees were not interested in keeping the law of God. They weren't. Not really. They concerned themselves not with God's law, but with their traditions. They didn't concern themselves with true Sabbath-keeping. That wasn't the Pharisees' concern. They concerned themselves with how many knots to tie on the Lord's day, how many steps they may take, and even more, how many knots and how many steps someone else may tie and take. They're not concerned. They never were about maintaining justice, loving Mercy. They concentrated instead on tithing one sprig out of ten on their mint plants while neglecting, and Jesus said they should have done that, by the way, but what they neglected were, were the widows and the orphans and justice and mercy and love 
to say nothing of humility. They were not nearly as concerned with obeying the commandments of God in the full spirit of those laws as they were in lowering the bar of God's law to a level they were more comfortable with. That could be more easily achieved. That's why Jesus turns the conversation so suddenly here to marriage and divorce. That's sort of jarring to us, isn't it? Did you notice that when we read the passage? Uh, strange that was? Just all of a sudden, out of the blue, we're talking about marriage and divorce. And where did this tangent come from? But from Jesus' perspective, it was just one perfect example of how the Pharisees had perverted God's law. He continues, Jesus does, verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now the Pharisees knew what Jesus was talking about. What our Bible translates one dot of the law in verse 17 is a tiny little little seraph. One tiny little tail of a Hebrew letter of the law. I guess I could try to describe Hebrew letters to you, but I might just as easily put it in terms of English letters. Not one I of, uh, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T in the law could possibly become void. The earth and the heavens would roll up and pass away and disappear before that could happen, Jesus says. Why this emphasis, though, on the details of God's law? Why is Jesus going there? Well, the answer is found in the example that Jesus gives. He says to the Pharisees, essentially, divorce is divorce, adultery is adultery, both are wrong and And marrying a divorced person, that's adultery and that's wrong. But why is that important? For the simple reason that the Pharisees had so warped the law of God that it had become very easy, for men anyway, very easy for men to divorce their wives. You think that marriage is in a crisis today, uh, ending in divorce Over half the time, both outside and inside the church, and you are right. But this is not the first time in history that marriage has come on hard times. In Jesus' day, divorces were granted to men who complained that their wife had burned their supper once. By the way, as I was typing those words, the smell of burning food was filling my study of wafting over from the kitchen. No worries, my dear. Uh, Men were allowed to divorce their wives in that day if they found someone prettier and desired a change of wives. And they did all this, they thought, in accordance with God's law. This was one particularly glaring and egregious example of how the Pharisees redefined and lowered the bar of God's law all over the place, across 
the board to serve their own purposes. Jesus says essentially that they have abandoned the spirit of the law with all their little details and all their qualifications. They've abandoned the real spirit of the law, which is that one woman should marry one man and that they should remain married until death do them part. That's the spirit of the law. And they had lost the spirit of the law for all of their nitpicky rules and traditions and layers on top of the law. It's not a debate over the proper grounds of divorce that Jesus is after this day. He's just supplying one example of how the Pharisees have qualified and modified and essentially circumvented the law of God to the point that it hardly even resembled the law of God anymore. In letter or in spirit. Even when they happened to obey God's law, you know, almost by accident. It was outward obedience. Only outward obedience. It was the shell, the empty husk of holiness. Without love, without genuineness, without a heart of devotion to God. If anything, it was a view with a view toward racking up some points with God, of making themselves righteous by their works. But God cuts through it all. And he sees through all that. Jesus says he looks at the heart. That's where his eyes are. He's not interested in outward conformity without inward love. That doesn't interest God. It doesn't impress him. He's not impressed with our attempts to make ourselves right with him. He wants your obedience. Of course he does. He has saved you, Christian, to make you holy, to make you more like himself, to conform you more and more to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But that will not happen until your obedience is motivated by love. Until you obey him out of gratitude, out of thankfulness. For the salvation he has lavished on you. That's how you obey the commandments the way he commanded them. By obeying them from the inside out. Not only with the hand, but first from the heart. Now please don't hear me saying that we save ourselves through the law Or that we sanctify ourselves by our obedience, no matter how purely offered to God. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by the power of God at work in us. But none of that cancels our human responsibility. The Bible teaches both all over the place. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That was Paul's shorthand way of saying that we have to love what God loves. We have to be saved The way God saves. And we have to obey the commandments the way God commanded them. 
from our hearts with a tenacious faith and trust in Jesus, our Savior, and loving the law of God. That kind of life is the life that moves in the same direction that Jesus is going, the direction that leads to glory. Amen.